Chapter 17. As a thermometer on our back porch mounted higher and higher with the summer heat, life at the center settled into something resembling a routine. Our 20 workers were busy from early morning until late at night. This was the schedule for the day. Rising bell at 7, breakfast at 7.30, dishes and cleanup, personal devotions until 9.30, group chapel from 9.30 to 11.30, dinner at noon, dishes, prayer, street work from 2 until 6, when we eat sack suppers together on the street, more street work until 7.30, back to the center for evening services until midnight, bed. The job of running the center very quickly became too big for any one man, and over the months we built up a cadre of experts in specialized fields who ran the center far better than I could have done on my own. Howard Culver, for instance, became our administrator. He saw to it that discipline was maintained. This was not always an easy task, with 20 lively young collegians and an ever-changing number of young gang members on his hands. Howard's wife, Barbara, was a godsend. She was a registered nurse. We found her presence invaluable with undernursed youngsters and especially with narcotics addicts whose bodies go through hell during the withdrawal. If I have a special place in my heart for the next member of our staff, I think it is understandable. He is Nicky. What a day it was for me when Nicky walked shyly through the front door of the center with a beautiful girl on his arm. Davy said Nicky quietly, I want you to meet my wife, Gloria. Nicky and Gloria had met on the West Coast while they were both in Bible school. I rushed forward to greet them, wringing Nicky's hand and slapping him on the back and welcoming Gloria so warmly I'm afraid she was a little startled. Nicky, Gloria, and I sat in the office and reminisced. I found it difficult to believe this was the same boy who had threatened to kill me just three years earlier. On our first encounter, Nicky had impressed me as a hopeless case. Yet here he was, sitting before me, a new person, a licensed minister bursting with plans for the future. "'What I want, Davy,' he said, leaning forward eagerly, "'is to work not just with kids, but with the parents.' What's the good helping of a boy if he's got to go home to a miserable family situation? It made sense, exciting sense, and Gloria's idea was just a sound. She wanted to work at the center, too. She loved children, and her special field would be the little people. Nikki had told her about the eight, nine, and ten-year-olds who run on the periphery of the gangs, and Gloria now pointed out that to reach these little ones before they got into serious trouble was even better than trying to pull them out of serious trouble later. Our permanent staff really excited me as it grew. We were coming at the problems of the street kids from all angles. I was working with the boys, Nikki with the parents, Gloria with the little people. But there was one large gap. We had no one whose special interest was in the Debs. Who is a Deb? And what is her relationship to the gangs? In recent years, the role of the young teenage girl has been growing in importance in the complex makeup of the gangs. She is known as a Deb. She groups together with other youngsters like herself to form auxiliaries to the boy gangs. Often these girl gangs take names that echo the names of their male counterpart, as in the Cobras and the Cobrettes. The girls, I quickly discovered, were often the cause of trouble on the streets. I know of one rumble that started because a Deb from one gang complained that a boy from a rival gang made a pass at her. Later, the girl confessed that she was lying all the time. She made up the story just so there would be a fight. She did it for kicks. It is a rare thing for a Deb to be a virgin. Marriage is out of style, preacher, these girls told me, laughing. There wasn't any use in my talking to them. They brazenly handled their nervousness by propositioning me. What we needed was a girl on the staff who was attractive enough to gain the Deb's respect, and yet who was solid enough in her own faith not to be shaken by their taunting and laughter. And we finally found her. We've got just the right girl to work with the Debs, honey, I reported to Gwen one evening. Wonderful, said Gwen. I hope she's pretty. She's got to be pretty for the job. I never thought I'd be urging my husband to find a pretty girl to work with. 
She is pretty, I said. Her name is Linda Meisner. She comes from a farm in Iowa. I just hope these city girls don't frighten her. Linda's job with the Debs was not an easy one. She got her introduction to the girls on her very first Saturday night at the center. In the late afternoon, five girls walked through the door and demanded to be shown around. Linda would have been willing to oblige, but I could smell alcohol on the girls' breath and tried to postpone the visit. We have a service here at 7.30 that's open to the public, I said. Come then. You'll be welcome. The girls came back at 7.30, bringing a group of boys with them. What are we going to do, David? Linda asked. The girls are quite drunk. Let's start by separating them, I said. Boys on one side, girls on the other. It did very little good. The girls giggled, mocked, blew loud bubbles on their gum, got up and walked in and out. I saw several of the girls get out knives and start cutting their shoelaces. In the middle of my sermon, they began to argue with me from the floor of the little chapel. I turned the meeting over to an all-girl trio, which included Linda, but they couldn't sing above the noise. Finally, we just gave up trying to hold an orderly meeting and turned our attention instead to individual boys and girls. Most of the girls got out of their seats and stormed out the door, slamming it loudly, not once, but twice behind them. One girl who stayed went over to the fellows and put her arm around their shoulders. Don't believe a word of it, she said to them one after another. That night the girls won. The evening broke up early with no results that we could see. This was Linda's introduction to her future friends. To cap the climax, we later learned that the same night over on South Second there had been a murder. It's hopeless, David, said Linda the next morning. I don't see how I can ever work with kids as hard as these... Wait till you see what the Holy Spirit can do, Linda, before you make up your mind. The very next Tuesday, Linda had her first experience of watching the change. Afterwards, she showed me the letter she had written to her parents. Every minute is full of excitement and a new adventure. On Tuesday, the entire gang of boys and girls returned. We wanted to have them come on different nights, but the girls begged to come in with the boys for a service. They promised not to laugh and to be good, so we let them all in. During the service, we sang... Jesus breaks every fetter. Dave asked if there was anything that anyone would like for God to break in their lives. A 14-year-old girl said she would like to be delivered from heavy drinking every night. One of the girls pulled up her sleeve and asked if God could forgive this, a line showing heroin inserts. The girls behaved as well as I've seen girls behave anywhere. From that moment on, girls from the gang sought Linda out for help. Elaine, for instance, one of the girls from the local gang, came to Linda with a very common problem for a Deb. She said she was poisoning her life with hate. I knew Elaine. She was a hard girl. You could just feel the hatred that clung about her. She was a discipline problem at school and at home. If she was told to sit, she'd stand. If to stand, she'd sit. If she was told she had to stay in, she'd slip out. Or if she was told to get out of the house, nothing could make her leave her room. Elaine's parents gave up and somehow managed to talk various relatives into boarding the girl for part of the year. One afternoon, Elaine came to see Linda. Linda reported to me later that they sat out in the kitchen and sipped pop and talked. Elaine's first words were that she had been drinking heavily. Then she told Linda that she had recently started going to wild parties. They started off wild and grew wilder. She said that some time ago she had lost her virginity and that sex was now just a dull routine. Suddenly, with no warning, Elaine began to cry. Linda, Elaine said at last, looking up. Do you know, I never did really fool myself. I never did once lie down on a bed with a fellow without a... I knew here, she felt her heart, that it was wrong. Linda, I don't want to hate myself anymore. Can you help me? Soon Elaine was coming regularly to our gang church meetings that we held every Wednesday night. She consented to stand up and tell what happened to her hate. Her face was open and fresh and free as Linda's. She was always singing or laughing. She started bringing her cousins and her friends... She stopped her drinking and her wild partying. 
Do you know why she stopped, Dave? Linda told me. She just said she couldn't be bothered. She had more interesting things to do. And Elaine was no isolated case. Day in and day out, we could count on reaching girls like Elaine with this special kind of love. I'll never forget the day Elaine put her finger on the quality of the love that redeems. I finally got it figured out, Reverend Wilkerson, said the girl. Christ's love is a love with no strings attached. Elaine is right. Christ's love is a love without angles, a love that asks nothing in return. It is a love that wants only the best for these boys and girls. And this is the quality that redeems. In one of her letters home, Linda wrote that her life was in constant danger. This was not an exaggeration. We do what we can to protect our workers. For instance, we have a rule that street work must be done in teams of two or three. We have a rule that girls are not allowed to make contact with boys on the street and vice versa. And we have a rule that workers must make contact with each other at regular intervals, especially when they are working at night. The fact remains, however, that our young students are work walking into areas where armed officers of the law travel in pairs for protection. A large percent of the, of the teenagers in the rougher sections of the city carry concealed weapons. If a boy is high on heroin, he might easily lash out with his knife just for kicks. But a much more serious problem is the jealousy that is aroused when our workers threaten to break up relationships. One night, Linda and a partner, Kay Ware, were out later than usual. It was near midnight on a sweltering summer night. Evening services were over and the girls should have gone to bed, but such was their interest in sharing what they had found that they headed out into the night, praying that the Holy Spirit would lead them to girls in need. The girls came to a candy store and looking inside, they saw four teenagers, girls, listening to rock and roll and sipping Cokes. Linda and Kay walked in and struck up a conversation with the girls. In one of those amazingly quick transitions that we had by now grown accustomed to, the four girls argued for only a few moments. Then one of them began to cry. Come on, said another of the foursome. Let's go out on the street. I don't want this jerk, she thumbed toward the store proprietor, to hear this. So all of the girls stepped outside into this sticky, sultry night. Hardly had they started talking again when all four of the girls started to cry like babies. Two fellows walked up. What's going on? They asked. The teenage girls told them to flake off. They didn't want to talk to the boys. This aroused the boys' curiosity even more than the tears, and they pressed in. What are you trying to do? They asked Linda. Take our girls away from us. One of the boys switched the approach and began to pinch Linda. Come over into the park, pretty one, and I'll show you something. The other fellow joined in then, and the two of them issued a string of suggestions to Linda and Kay that left them embarrassed and confused. But they had a good defense. Swinging around suddenly and looking the leader of the two boys squarely in the eye, Linda said slowly, God bless you. The boy's jaw dropped. Linda turned then and picked up her conversations with the four girls, and the boys sputtered a while. Then one of them said, Hell, let's get out of this creep's way. Linda and Kay went back to their talks with the teenage girls. After a while, though, they were aware that a whole crowd of boys was descending slowly on them from many different directions. You better watch out, whispered one of the teenage girls. Linda and Kay moved closer together, but they continued talking calmly. Then suddenly, there was a loud laugh and a cry. All of the girls were surrounded by yelping, shouting teenage boys. The fellows crowded in and separated Linda and Kay from the other girls. Say, little one, you make me mad, said the leader of the boys. You talking religion to our girls? You'll take them away from us. And again, the sex talk began. Linda and Kay heard language they'd never heard before. The boys pushed and taunted them. From nowhere, something glistened in the dark. Linda looked. One of the boys had a crescent-shaped knife in his hand that shone in the night like the moon. Without warning, he lunged at Linda. Linda slipped her body sideways. The knife slashed through her clothing. 
It ripped out a chunk of her dress, but it did not touch her body. Linda turned to the boy while he was still off balance. Once again, she spoke the words that had helped her before. Her voice was low, and she put all the meaning she could into her words. God bless you. Then she took Kay by the arm. Come over to the center tomorrow, 416 Clinton Avenue, she said. We'll be expecting you. Then she and Kay sauntered off across the street. At first, the boys followed them, singing their sex calls. Then, for reasons that Linda and Kay still do not understand, the leader shouted for the boys to stop. Come on, he said. Let's forget it. I don't feel like fooling with them. Linda and Kay came back to the center shaking, but the next day they did pick up conversations with the four girls, and the next night they were out on the street again. I'm glad your foot is better, Larry, Linda wrote in a casual letter home. I wish I could tell you what's on my heart. You can actually feel the presence of evil. I know that my life is in danger. I only have one desire, to burn out for God 